This is another special feature presentation of the World War I Centennial News Podcast. Welcome to Part 2 of In Sacrifice for Liberty and Peace. This two-part special is an adaptation from a live staged event the Commission produced on the April 6, 2017 centennial of America's entry into The War That Changed the World. Edward Billis as the Artistic Director and Chris Christopher as the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission's Executive Producer pulled together an amazing group of artists, historians, musicians, actors, and others for a live performance staged at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, playing to an audience of over 3,000 attendees. For this two-part special, we have excerpted key moments from the story that unfolds the music that was performed, and the readings from a cast of amazing actors, orators, musicians, and other luminaries. In part one, we examined the great debate in America about getting into the war, and today, in part two, we present how events overtook the debate as America declares its entry into World War I. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission, and your host. Before we get into the main part of the show, let me try to set this up. We've gone back in time to January 1917. Late last year, in 1916, Woodrow Wilson ran for president under the slogan of He Kept Us Out of War and America First, and he won by a slim margin. In Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and other areas around the world, all tied together by colonial imperialism, the war rages on. Not long after the election of 1916, events would unfold at a rapid pace until the United States reached a tipping point where isolationism could no longer be an option. January 19, 1917, Arthur Zimmerman, Foreign Secretary of the German Empire, sent a telegram to the German ambassador to Mexico proposing an alliance between Germany and Mexico in the event of U.S. entry into the war. We intend to begin on the 1st of February unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor, in spite of this, to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance, make war together, make peace together, and an understanding that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. You will inform the president of the above as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States of America is certain. The British Admiralty, which had cracked the German diplomatic cipher systems, decoded the message within hours. Seeking to influence the American government, the British provided the Americans a copy of the telegram. On the 28th of February, President Wilson released the telegram to the press. The appearance of the news nationwide on March 1st galvanized American support for entry into the war. January 31st, 1917, Robert Lansing, Secretary of State, received a note from the German ambassador to the United States. 
A new situation has been created which forces Germany to new decisions. England is using her naval power for a criminal attempt to force Germany into submission by starvation. In brutal contempt of international law, the powers led by England, by ruthless pressure, compel neutral countries either to altogether forgo every trade not agreeable to the Entente powers or to limit it according to their arbitrary decrees. From February 1st, 1917, sea traffic will be stopped with every available weapon and without further notice. This message from the German ambassador directly contravened the German guarantee to Wilson that ended unrestricted submarine warfare following the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915. Coupled with the Zimmermann telegram, Germany's renewed aggression decisively changed Americans' attitudes about the war. On February 3rd, 1917, the United States formally ended diplomatic relations with Imperial Germany. On February 25th, 1917, the Cunard Line ship Laconia was struck by German torpedoes. Floyd Gibbons, an American correspondent for the Chicago Tribune, was on board and lived to describe the scene. At 10.30 p.m., there was a muffled noise, five sharp blasts, the signal to abandon. We walked hurriedly down the corridor to the lounge, which was amidships. We moved fast, but there was no crowding and no panic. We looked down the slanting side of the ship and noticed her waterline was a number of feet above the waves. The lifeboats rested against the side of the ship. I could see that we were going to have difficulty in the descent to the water. Lower away, someone gave the order, and we started down toward the seemingly hungry swells. The stern of the boat was down, the bow up, leaving us at an angle of about 45 degrees. The tiers of lights dimmed slowly, from white to yellow, then to red, and nothing was left but the murky morning of the night. The ship sank rapidly at the stern until at last its nose stood straight in the air, and then it slid silently down and out of sight. Austin Y. Hoy, a Chicago machinery company executive working in London, cabled President Woodrow Wilson after the sinking of the Laconia. My beloved mother and sister, passengers on the Laconia, have been foully murdered. I call upon my government to preserve its citizens' self-respect and save others of my countrymen from such deep grief as I now feel. I am of military age, able to fight. If my country can use me against these brutal assassins, I am at its call. If it stullifies my manhood and my nations by remaining passive under outrage, I shall seek a man's chance under another flag. Events abroad also served to tip American opinion. The fall of the Russian Tsar's regime on March 15, 1917, resulted in a greater moral clarity for the Allied cause. The war was now a struggle of democratic nations against autocratic empires. But despite the passions aroused by the Zimmerman telegram and the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare, Wilson himself had no personal desire to bring the U.S. into conflict in Europe. Wilson told a journalist off the record, If there is any alternative, for God's sake, let's take it. 
March 20, Wilson confers with his cabinet. They unanimously vote for war. March 21, Wilson calls Congress into special session for April the 2nd. On the evening of April the 2nd, 1917, President Wilson addresses a joint session of Congress asking for a declaration of war. While we do these momentous things, let us make clear to all the world what our motives are. Our object now as then is to vindicate the principles of peace and justice as against selfish and autocratic power. Neutrality is no longer feasible or desirable where the peace of the world is involved and the freedom of its principles. And the menace to that peace and freedom lies in the existence of autocratic governments. We have seen the last of neutrality. We are at the beginning of an age in which it will be insisted that the same standards of conduct and of responsibility for wrong done shall be observed among nations and their governments that are observed among the individual citizens of civilized states. The Congress rose to its feet and applauded enthusiastically. Cheering crowds lined the streets as Wilson departed from the Capitol. As author Byron Farwell wrote... It was the greatest speech of Wilson's life. At about 10 o'clock, when the president had returned to the White House, he and his wife had dinner with friends, after which Wilson wandered into the empty cabinet room. His secretary, Joseph Tumulty, found him there. Think what they were applauding, he said to Tumulty. My message today was a message of death for our young men. How strange it seems to applaud that. He put his head down on the table in the cabinet room and sobbed. Still, in the face of aggression, there were voices of opposition. Arkansas Senator George Norris. Belligerency would benefit only the class of people who will be made prosperous should we become entangled in this present war, who have already made millions, and who will make hundreds of millions more if we get into the war. To whom does the war bring prosperity? Not to the soldier, not to the broken-hearted widow, not to the mother who weeps at the death of her brave boy. I feel that we are about to put the dollar sign on the American flag. The Senate passed the war resolution with only three Republicans and three Democrats opposed. The House voted 373-4 with 50 opposed. Jeanette Rankin, the first woman to serve in Congress and the lone female representative, voted against the resolution. The approved declaration of war was sent to President Wilson on April 6, 1917. At 1 p.m. that day, he signed, approved, 6 April 1917, Woodrow Wilson. mobilized, we leave you with the voices of two soldiers. Major General John J. Pershing to President Woodrow Wilson, April 10, 1917. Dear Mr. President, as an officer of the Army, may I now extend to you as Commander-in-Chief of the Armies my sincere congratulations upon your soul-stirring patriotic address to the Congress on April 2nd, 
Your strong stand for the right will be an inspiration to humanity everywhere, but especially to the citizens of the Republic. It arouses in the breast of every soldier feelings of the deepest admiration for their leader. I am exultant that my life has been spent as a soldier in camp and field, that I may now the more worthily and more intelligently serve my country and you. With great respect, your obedient servant, John J. Pershing, Major General, U.S. Army. And from the diary of my great-grandfather, Sergeant Alvin C. York, serialized in Liberty Magazine in 1927. I had no time to bother much about a lot of foreigners quarreling and killing each other over in Europe. I just wanted to be left alone to live in peace and love. I wasn't planning my life any other way. I figured that if some people in the Wolf River Valley were quarreling, it wasn't any of my business to go and interfere. And Europe was much further away. I never dreamed we'd go over there to fight, so I didn't pay much attention to it. I didn't let it bother me until I received from the post office a little red card telling me to register for the draft. That's how the war came to me, in the midst of all my peace and happiness and dreams, which I felt all along were too good to be true and just couldn't last. In the meantime, the popular music of the time begins to address the American soldier, his image, and his place in the world. If he can fight like he can love, oh, what a soldier boy he'll be. If he's just half as good in a trench as he was in the park on a bench, then every hand had better run and find a great big linden tree. rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade 
When spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air, I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill when spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear. God knows t'were better to be deep pillowed in silk and scented down where love throbs out in blissful sleep, pulse nigh to pulse and breath to breath where hushed awakenings are dear. But I've a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year, and I, to my pledged word, am true. I shall not fail that rendezvous. And so America goes to war and takes her place on the world stage. Nothing would ever be the same again as the country heads into the most rapid and profound transformation of her young existence. World War I Centennial News is here to tell you the story. We'll explore World War I Centennial News then, what was happening 100 years ago this week. And we'll explore World War I Centennial News now, what's happening today with the centennial commemoration of the war that changed the world. And so it begins. That was part two of our special feature presentation of In Sacrifice for Liberty and Peace, our two-part special of America's reluctant entry into World War I. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. Our podcasts and these specials are a part of that endeavor. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on your smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW and the number 1, texted to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn and on iTunes and Google Play at www.centennialnews. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at www.cc and we're on Facebook at www.centennial. 
Thank you for listening to the special presentation of the World War I Centennial News. A full list of the many talented people who contributed to this production is in the podcast notes. So long.